Hope you're having a great morning. I'm looking forward to going through this passage with you today. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be back in Luke 15. We're going to finish our walk through the parables. Um, we didn't get them all done. Obviously, there's over 40 of them. Um, but I think the parables, kind of like the Psalms that we've gone through in the past, what we might do is just chunk them off and do different ones on different years. Um, I think that's probably the best way to go through books like that rather than just take, you know, a couple hundred weeks to go through all of it at one time. Um, but I've enjoyed it, even though it's been a short walk through the parables, because it really shows us Christ in a clear way as he preaches the kingdom to us. And it doesn't just speak to the original audience, it's speaking to us, right? And today, as we go through the prodigal son, I think we're going to see Christ just as clearly as we were able to see him last week. And I know we went through the, the uh, parable of the prodigal son, but we just, if you noticed, we stopped halfway through it. And we did that for a reason. Um, and if you were here last week, you'll know I'm not a big fan of even the title, the prodigal son. That's not anywhere in the Bible. That's just something that we call it. Prodigal just means to be lavish, to be extravagant, to even be reckless with your spending. And the reason that it is titled the prodigal son is because they're focused on how the son handles his finances. But really the most prodigal nature of that whole story is how God spends his love lavishly, extravagantly on the lost son. So we're going to look at this again today. And, uh, you know, as, as I was putting this together, I'm pretty resolved, pretty sure, that all of our emotional static um, would probably just melt away if we had an accurate view of how God loves us. Not just an accurate view of who God is, but a real clear and accurate view of how he loves us, likes us, has favor on us. I, I think things like anxiety, fear, anger, uh, the things that are usually running rough, roughshod all over us at all times would just kind of go away. One of the most, I guess, consistent quotes we've used all year through three different series just this year is the one from Tozer who says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because I know when I'm blind to God's love for me, when I'm blind to how he loves me and has favor on me, I get angry and I get anxious and I get fearful I get resentful, and that's what I want to talk about today. I start getting resentful, and I complain a lot because I'm just like you. I don't always get what I want in this life. I don't. I don't get what I want, not all the time. And when I don't get what I want, just like you, I throw a tantrum. I complain. I rant. We call it venting, but that's just a way of polishing up the word rant. We're ranting. I complain out loud. And nothing will get me to rant and complain faster than not only when I don't get what I want, I look across the aisle and somebody else is getting what I don't think they deserve, right? If I don't get what I want and they get what I want, well then, that's a totally different story. I mean, if we were all very honest with ourselves, when things go poorly for us, we kind of want everyone else to be in the same boat as us, right? We prefer everyone else to do poorly as well. It's weird that we're like that. And I know I'm not alone. Don't judge me. I know you're just like that. There's something comforting in knowing that if we don't get what we want, nobody gets what we want, right? We are half excited, half encouraged when good things happen to other people, but only half encouraged. The other half of us says, what about me? What about me? 
That's a question we're always asking ourselves, even if we don't say it out of our mouths. What about me? Try this on Christmas. It's just as an experiment. If you have kids, this would be a fun, fun, fun experiment. Because your kids are so excited to give a gift. Give them a gift. Watch their eyes light up. Watch how thankful they are. Watch how giddy they get about it. And then give their sibling a gift that's a little bit better. They can no longer see how awesome their gift is. They're blind to it. All they can see is what they don't have. Give one kid two chocolate Santas and watch them be so thankful for the chocolate Santas, so excited, give the other kid four just to do it, just to see what happens, right? Give one a scooter and then give the other one a scooter that plugs in and is an electric one, right? And you will see that they are no longer excited about that gift because all they can see is what they don't have, right? Did I just say kids? I meant adults, by the way. I meant adults in that. That's how we are. It's in all of us. We most often have eyes for what we are not getting. And this is original programming, by the way. This is our standard operating procedure. You can go all the way back to the first family and look at Genesis 4. It'll be up on the screen. You don't need to turn there. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, that's a different sermon in and of itself, but what I want you to see is this next part. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. He had envy. He was resentful in this moment. Genesis 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied, envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Envy and resentment, that's a common theme through your Old Testament, really through your Bible. Saul envied God's favor on David. So did Absalom, his son. David envied what God had given Uriah as a gift. Jacob envied Esau. Laban envied Jacob. On and on and on. Your Bible is full of people that are asking, what about me? What about me? It's in all of us. Since the garden, we see that we can be a blessed people, but then also envious at the same time. At the same time, you see, envy is a real important concept for us, especially in the parable that we're about to walk through, because envy is the business partner of resentment. They work tightly together. They travel together at all times. Envy is always going to be the voice that tells you that you deserve what other people are getting that they don't deserve. Resentment is going to tell you that you will be more comfortable if you hate them for it and maybe even hate God for it. And that bears the fruit that we call complaining, grumbling, complaining which is just a verbal resentment of God. When we complain about what someone else has that we do not have, what we are really doing is saying is God's not good. He's not sovereign. He's selective with his grace and his love. He's choosy and he chooses the wrong people. He's not good and he's obviously not sovereign because if he was, he would give me what he is giving them. He missed. That should be mine. And he gave it to them and it doesn't make any sense. That's what complaining does. And it's powerful in us. And it makes it really hard for us to celebrate when God does something beautiful in another person's life. It makes it hard for us. Now last week when we looked at this parable, we saw that the main idea is that God shows that he has a velocity to his love. He's speedy with his love. He is a running father, a father that chases us down to be extravagant with us. who We are reckless in our sin he is extravagant with his love. And we saw last week that Jesus, he receives sinners, but not ex-sinners. And he won't allow us to be servants. He'll only let us be family. 
We saw all this, that he draws us home out of famines in faraway lands with no compassion. But as we finish the parable, we're going to see that not everybody in the household is excited to celebrate the lost son. Not everybody's on the same page. So let's do this. Let's look at Luke 15. I want to I take it from the top again in verse 11. That's when the parable starts because I want to give the context. I know it's a familiar parable, even if you weren't here last week, but I think it's going to be helpful for us to see Christ, and we're going to see him in two or three different places in this parable. But this is the word of the Lord for us today. Verse 11 of chapter 15. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had took on a journey into a faraway country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And that's why they call it the prodigal right there. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself to one of the citizens in that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with the hunger? I will arise, go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And he put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. And that's where we stopped last week, but this is what it says in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found." Okay, there's a lot going on, a lot going on. But one thing that we see clearly is the older brother has this frozen anger, a frigid anger, and it matters because of, again, the listeners. And we talked a little bit about how the listeners were the Pharisees. That's the audience here. The Pharisees would resonate in their heart to a certain degree with this character in the story because they wanted celebration for themselves. 
What they were watching is all these people coming into the kingdom, all these who were lost being recovered, and they would say to themselves, what about me? What about me? I haven't gone anywhere. I haven't received any kind of favor and love and celebration like this. And I think it's important, and we did not talk about this last week, about who the Pharisees really were, right? Now, when, if you grew up in church, maybe made your way, navigated the Sunday school system as a kid, you probably grew to understand the Pharisees to be these stuck-up hall monitors. They're always on Jesus' case, and there's a lot of truth to that. But I want you to know that when they were in exile, when Israel was in exile, it would be the Pharisees that would keep the law intact, the culture intact, so that there would be something to bring back. They were heroes. They were heroes in that moment. They held tightly to the Old Testament, to their culture, to their heritage, and they hungered for purity. And they did it when it was hard, when other people wouldn't do it. They hungered for this desire that their nation would be distinctive among all the nations of the world. And while other nations were living recklessly, even their own brothers and sisters who were Jews were living recklessly, they would be found obeying, behaving, doing the right thing. That's who the Pharisees are. Sure, there's heavy corruption by the time we catch up with them in the New Testament, but not all of them had wicked, corrupt hearts. You see the story of Nicodemus. You hear about Gamaliel in the background. They were waiting for God's return to bring the kingdom back. They just didn't see Jesus as the king of this kingdom. They didn't know that anything had been inaugurated. They couldn't trust it. They didn't believe it. So like the older brother, these Pharisees are saying they were always with God. We've always been here. They never disobeyed his commands. That's why he is telling the story the way he is telling it. In their hunt for purity, they'd have a hard time with these wayward people coming close without going through all the things they had to go through. Right? They were getting a celebration, and they were not. And they are starting to feel and sound and resonate with the older brother. Jesus, you mean to tell me that these prostitutes can just come in like this? These meth heads, these crooked politicians, these pedophiles can just be brought in just like that in their celebration in heaven? I've been here. We've been here. We show up to church every Sunday. We do all the stuff we're supposed to do. What about me? And this is what's exposed in this moment. They have an inward poverty that cannot enjoy what God is doing in the lives of others. Because their view of God is one who gives good things to people who do good. And withholds good things to people who do not do good. And this is wrecking the narrative. They have based their relationship on merits. And they're seeing people that carry none become celebrated. And here they are, they feel like they've been carrying all of the merits and they're not getting the same celebration. That's the big idea for you and me. Celebrating favor towards others, it can also, in you and me, reveal an inward poverty. We are inwardly impoverished when we cannot bring ourselves to enter into the joy of others with deep gratitude. Now listen, we don't know what the older brother did at this point. We don't know if he actually went into the party. It's a parable, after all. I'd like to believe he did, right? But the ending's kind of irrelevant. Jesus leaves it open-ended because it's an invitation. He's inviting the Pharisees in this moment. That's what he's doing. He was wanting them to celebrate lost people being found. Here's where this passage has made me wrestle. This is where it strikes me between the eyes. 
we want favor to visit just the people that earn it. And we see ourselves as those people. Others, not so much. Not so much. The younger brother, the younger brother that we looked at last week, he felt unapproachable because of his lack of merit. This older brother feels entitled because of his abundant merit. And they were both dead wrong. And like I said last week, we are both brothers in this parable, both at the same time. But what I want to do this week, different than last week, is zoom in on the older brother because he is a big bag of resentment in this, and I totally get him. I understand this guy. I think you do too, right? I get it. I can appreciate people experiencing joy and freedom and wealth and happiness unless I'm not getting it. I I can appreciate good things happening to others unless it's not happening to me then it becomes difficult. I want happiness for all as long as I am included in the all. And what's interesting in this story is that resentment is moving in two different directions, which is very accurate for how it works with you and me as well. He's resenting the father, sure. He's also resenting his brother. And that's how it is for us. We have a vertical resentment against God for not being good, not being sovereign. And then we can also pick up a deep resentment for the people that are getting God's blessing when it is not us, which is interesting. When we live in a world where everyone does not get what we want, we will turn against God, we will turn against mankind, we will turn against ourselves. That's what envy and resentment does. It builds a version of you that is very miserable, dark, pessimistic even. There's this interesting subculture that's popping up. It's been around actually for 20 years or so to some degree, but now it's becoming more mainstream. And it is the subculture called the INCEL. That's spelled I-N-C-E-L. It stands for involuntary celibate. Some of you have heard about it. Some of you have seen it, or you probably know more about it than I do. But it's an online subculture of mostly heterosexual men who are unable to have romantic relationships with women. Because they just, they're not attractive. Maybe it's their personality. Maybe it's the way they look. Who knows? Maybe it's both. But they are having a hard time having any kind of a romantic relationship, and so they start to resent it. They feel entitled to have something that others have. Someone else has something. They don't have it. So what they do is they become dangerous. They develop a deep hatred for men and women who can have the relationship. In fact, in the last eight years, self-declared incels, men who refer to themselves as an incel, have committed eight mass murders, claiming over 61 deaths. It's a lot. In 2017, Reddit actually shut down the subreddit of incel, and when they did, there were over 40,000 members by the time they shut it down. All I did was put incel in the search engine. These were the top four news reports that came out. The first one was from the Department of Justice. Manhattan incel pleads guilty to carrying out hoax bomb threat at restaurant. Psychology Today says, new tools can prevent incel terrorism. Wired UK says, how do you de-radicalize an incel? I want you to just pick up on these words. De-radicalize, terrorism, bomb threat. That is what's coming out of the resentment. They don't just resent God, they're resenting everybody else. And what's interesting is there's a subculture out of the subculture now where it's not just men, but femcells. Female, you get it, female involuntary celibates. And this was the top headline that came from that search from The Guardian. A woman saying, I feel hurt that my life has ended up here. I feel hurt. 
incels, femcels, anyone who resonates with being this type of hurt, when unchecked, can develop a deep resentment, dangerous resentment for God themselves and the rest of the world. It's older brother syndrome. It's older brother syndrome. It's the heart of Cain, unable to find joy. This is what Henry Nguyen says in his book, The Prodigal Son, when he's discussing this posture of the older brother, he describes something, and he did this way in front of his time. He says, I become suspicious or defensive and increasingly afraid that I won't get what I desire. Caught in this tangle of needs and wants, I feel victimized by my surroundings and distrustful of what others are doing and saying. Always on my guard, I lose I lose my inner freedom and start dividing the world into those who are for me and against me. I wonder if anyone really cares. I start looking for validation of my distrust, and wherever I go, I see them, and I say, no one can be trusted. And then I wonder whether anyone ever really loved me. The world around me becomes dark. My heart grows heavy. My body is filled with sorrows. My life loses meaning. I have become a lost soul. This is real. This is real. It's your neighbor. It's some of you. I mean, the heart is one that aches for gospel change. Listen, Jesus is perfect for the involuntary celibate. The, the incel is perfect for the gospel. The fem cell is perfect for the gospel. They're perfect for Christ. Christ is perfect for them. It's the good news. Let me ask you, though, what are you furious about not getting that you firmly believe you deserve? And yet others get it, and they don't deserve it at all. What is that for you? What is it? Because you've got to know it's shaping your view of God. It's shaping your view of your neighbor and if you leave it unchecked, it will steal meaning from your life. Maybe it's at work. Maybe somebody else's marriage. Maybe their education, their money, the level of influence they have, their humor, their body. Who knows? What do you deserve that somebody else is getting? How would you do their life better than they're doing their life? Where do you feel like you've been robbed? These are the big questions that we have to approach our older brother heart and ask as often as we can. Because listen, there is an interior poverty that we've already looked at that is begging for an interior freedom that only the gospel can bring. We all complain in our own ways, don't we? I mean, I, I preach about grumbling all the time up here, not because it's my favorite topic, it's because it's something that I struggle with and I have an inside track on and I know I desperately, just like you, need a way out of complaining. I need a way out of grumbling, of envy. I, I, want, I want the freedom. There is a freedom when others get what you don't get and you're excited about it. There's a freedom. I, I want that freedom of people blowing right by me, even though I'm in my nightmare, getting things that I really feel like I deserve and watching them throw it away. There's a freedom in this. I want to be this free. I don't want complaining to be this native tongue. I want it to be a foreign language. I want the interior freedom to enjoy God blessing others in kind ways, comma, but not me. I want that freedom. But how do I get there? How do you get there? How do we live a life where we stop asking the question, what about me? What about me? 
Well, the parable is actually going to give us the answer. It leaves a lot of evidence for us. Luke 15, verse 31, and he, meaning the father, says to the older brother, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. All that is mine is yours. You see, what the younger brother is coming back to is what the older brother always had. He's always had it, this tight, close relationship with a very extravagant father. There is a treasure there that he never left, that he never abandoned. We actually have a treasure that we cannot be enriched upon. It says this in Ephesians 1. This is Paul talking to a young church, and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We cannot be enriched upon the inheritance of God's love. Cannot. Once you have the affection of God, the smile of God upon your soul, you cannot be increased. Cannot be, cannot be enriched. Listen, when you see someone blessed where you aren't, be glad and rejoice full of high fives, not because they did deserve it or did not deserve it or it's even the right thing to do, but rejoice because God has given himself to you. He's given himself to you, not on your merits either, but on the merits of what Christ has done. In the last week, when we were looking at the gospel thread through this parable, we found that Jesus himself becomes a sort of unrebellious prodigal son for our sake. He leaves the house of the heavenly father, enters into a land of famine and no compassion. And he does so not to spend a treasure, but to spend his own life. And then he returns home, but he does so through the cross. So we have a better younger brother. But we also have a better version of the older brother, a savior and a king who never disregards the father, who never discards his values or his relationship. We have one who never squandered his inheritance. He stays true, and even now he is better in the fact that he is excited to welcome the wayward. He's excited. Jesus isn't resentful for his loss of life, for our gain. He celebrates over it. Because here's the truth. Others are going to have more than you in this world. That's true. Others are just going to have more than you. In fact, compare yourself to the world. See if I'm wrong. Just look at social media. That's what it does really well. See if other people don't have what you want, what you think you deserve. They're going to have more money than you, more relationships than you, better bodies, better health, better humor, more time, more influence, more power. You won't get what others have. Not all of them, you're not going to get it. And you will be tempted to resent them for it and God for it. But the gospel, the gospel is a set of good news that says to you, all that is mine is yours. It comes in the side door. Amidst all the, the, the felt lack and whispers in our ear, all that is mine is yours. All the depth of my riches is yours. Last week we begin, or we said that we begin by the gospel in order to embody the gospel. We begin by the gospel in order to become the gospel, which is just a fancy way of saying that we have to import the truth and the reality of the gospel and get our arms all the way around it. We have to import it in order to export it. 
Because the gospel empowers us to love those who do not deserve the things, who do not deserve even the love because God has given us himself. The gospel is a story that makes us free to smile and laugh and be excited and encouraged when others get good things because we don't see it as a statement on our value. We don't see it as a commentary on how much God likes us or loves us. Because friends, listen, if you're wondering, if you're left wondering how God values you and you don't get what you want, just look to the cross. Look to the cross where sin was defeated. Look to the tomb where death was defeated. Look to Jesus who did all the work. Let that inscribe your value, not what somebody else gets and you don't get. See, there is an interior freedom. Boy, it's so free to live like that. There is an interior freedom, and it generates gratitude. I know we're staring down the barrel of Thanksgiving. This was not by design, right? And I know I saw on the news this morning that there are some colleges in our fruited plain that want to redefine Thanksgiving to be a celebration that's more of a mourning than a Thanksgiving for good things. We're supposed to mourn it now. You go ahead and do that if you want. I'm going to be thankful for what God has given us, right? Gratitude is a spiritual discipline that I would argue, and I think I could do a good job of arguing, is as probably valuable as any discipline, any spiritual discipline that we could possibly walk in. The one of gratitude. A life without gratitude and thankfulness is a life that simply loses its meaning. I agree with Nguyen in this. You lose yourself. But gratitude requires a few things, and one of them is watchfulness, which I'm going to speak for all of us. We're pretty lousy at it. A watchfulness, a looking at the landscape of the littered evidences of God's kindness to you and to me. That, that's, that takes some work, some intentionality, because what our flesh wants to do is something different. Our flesh is always prepared for bad news. We, we look out for bad news all the time. And when we're always looking for bad news to complete our narrative, it's really hard to see God's kindness on display. We can't enjoy God's small acts of kindness because we're always waiting for the boot to drop, right? Have you ever said that to yourself or heard someone else say that? Like, I don't know, man, things are going really well right now. It makes me kind of worried. <laughs> things are going really good right now. There's got to be a turn coming somewhere. That's just Buddhist karma. That's about as Christian as a rabbit's foot, by the way, right? But we're so used to looking for it, a validation that nothing good happens to us, that nothing good is for us. We, we want to validate our resentment. And it just doesn't take long to complete that narrative, right? To look around and see what other people have. The story of what we don't have, of what we should have. That's how one incel turns to 40,000, validating each other really fast. Really fast. Meanwhile, God's thoughtfulness is passing us right by. And I want you to think of God's thoughtfulness in one key way. It's a custom handcrafted thoughtfulness. When God is kind to you and me, have you not noticed yourself how it would be subtly missed by everybody around you? But you get it. You get it. You understand. That's something that maybe just only you and God would understand. It is a custom kindness. Even in you telling other people about it. They might go, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, that, I guess that is God being kind. But you know differently because you were just praying about something like that and he knew how you were wired and, and God remembered that thing that you remembered from childhood. It's a, it's a handcrafted goodness to you. We miss it when we're always looking for things to go wrong. Gratitude 
is when we put words to what we see, acknowledging that God brought them to us, not because we're impressive or have merit, but because Jesus was good and God loves us. Because listen, it is a world full of jagged edges and heavy disappointment. I was looking at some writing, looking at my appointments, just over the last 30 days, my phone calls, just over the last 30 days, that's it. Just a small part of the year. These are the topics that I had to do some heavy discussions on. Cancer, chemotherapy, loss of direction, abuse, divorce, death, mistrust, miscarriage, adultery, addiction, depression, broken families, broken churches, shut down churches, burnout, loneliness, fear. It is a long list just reminding me, this is a tough world. It's a tough world. It happens so much that it just tends to be background noise. And we've all learned how to function in it, looking at it, expecting it. Even in a room this size, is it not true that it only take just a few wisely said words to either get you to cry or be enraged? We're all just a few words away, right? We're all just a few words away. This world is hard. And if you have no rhythm or practice or discipline of spotting the moments of grace and thoughtful care, you will lose meaning in this life under the sun. If you're not accustomed to rejoicing and practicing gratitude, if you're not used to that, you will only practice complaining and resentment and hatred, and you will come apart at the seams. That's the truth. You'll end up hating God, your neighbor, and yourself. So what we have to do is develop disciplines where we learn to steal joy and make sure that others see it as much as we do. I think that's an important thing. Listen, you can ask anyone on our staff. We start off every staff meeting with, what are some good kind evidences of God being thoughtful for you in the last two weeks? I've started a couple DNAs like that as well. I've started meetings, just sitting across the lunch table with that. Why am I doing that? I'm doing that because... It's interesting how hard we have to scan the hard drive to see what good things God has done, right? It's not uncommon for me to ask a question like that and for have somebody that really loves Jesus, gets the gospel, great disciple, and for me to say, hey, what's something kind that God has done? What's, what's God done to console your heart in the last 24 hours, week, month, to have them go, huh, uh, let me think about it. There was that one, no, 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 not that one, okay. What are they doing? They're scanning. It's not because God hasn't done good things, and it's not because they don't believe it. It's because they're not used to looking for it. We're not used to even spotting it when it happens. And so I want you to see it when I ask that question, and I want to hear it. I want to see what God is doing in your life that is good. I want a high-five moment with you. I want to share the encouragement with you. We need to hear each other's stories. We need to hear each other have a gratitude for what God is doing. It enriches all of us to hear that. Sure, there's still pain around us. But listen, God is on the move, and the kingdom is, is expanding. And the church is the tip of the spear. So yeah, we need some disciplines. As you put together your resolutions for this next year, Maybe one of them can be just the practice of stepping off of the track out of the flurry and just spotting God's handcrafted kindness to you on the horizon. What has he done in the last 24 hours, four hours, 
two days, week, however you want to do it, however you want to dice it up. We talk about this in the spiritual disciplines class every single time we do the class. Journal it, pray it, shoot a TikTok, don't really care. Just go through the process of slowing down, coming out of the heavy fray just to see and to state clearly, this is how I have felt God's tangible grace to my life. And let me tell you, if you do that and you practice that discipline day in and day out, you'll start seeing it in real time. You'll start seeing it right as it happens. No more scanning the hard drive. You have the sensitive radar that picks it up immediately. Then you become a person that is resistant against resentment and envy. No longer seeing what other people have that you don't have, but you're so thankful for what God has given you and who he is to you. Learn to steal those moments. And listen, it doesn't just take intentionality and watchfulness to practice a discipline like that. It requires a lot of courage because it means letting go of what you feel like you deserve. It means letting go of it. So as a church, there's a lot of room for us to repent. Where is it that you resent God? That's a real question. That's an adult question. Where is it that you resent God? Where is it that you resent your neighbor? Listen, we've got an opportunity, church, to follow the Father right into the party where joy is found, where joy is found, and we can let go of what we feel like we deserve because the Father has told you and me, all I have is yours. All I have is yours. And listen, if you're in here, you're listening to me here, you're watching right now, and you are far from Christ, you don't even know what that means, maybe, Maybe something happened when you were a kid. Maybe you're not really sure you even believe in this thing called Christianity or God or the church, but you're curious. Let me just say that right this minute, right this minute, God is inviting you to join him and his family in celebration. Because our king, he receives sinners, not ex-sinners, not sinners who have done a good job of cleaning themselves up, but sinners. There is a father who cares for the envious and the resentful, for the reckless, for the lost, for the wayward, and he has spent everything. He's been lavish and extravagant with how much he even spent his own life. And when he did this, he canceled our need to be perfect and impressive. Don't have to be impressive. There's no one to prove yourself to.